I don't know if you remember, Aaron, there were news stories about how they would find somebody who had like a terabyte drive in their apartment with all these MP3s that they had ripped and they were trying to prosecute them. Like they were gonna put these people in jail. I mean, think about that today, how preposterous and bizarre that whole notion is. So I just want to throw that like, it's, if we, it's hard to remember those times, but that was actually happening. Well, I definitely remember the days back when the major record labels were suing college kids for downloading free music on sites like Napster, Audio Galaxy, and Kazaa. And that's because I was in college and everyone I knew had hard drives full of freely downloaded MP3s. And yeah, there was basically a war going on between a music industry desperately trying to protect their cash cow and a generation of digital natives who wanted to be able to get their music online. So far on Webmasters, I've documented the digital side of this war from lots of different perspectives. We've heard from Peter Sunde of The Pirate Bay and Michael Merhej of Audio Galaxy, two entrepreneurs helping people access free music. We've also heard from Mark Jasson of eMusic and Michael Robertson of mp3.com, who are both trying to make users pay for their music online. And we've even heard from Jason Olam, founder of CD Now, who was the first man to sell music online in the form of shipping CD. Now, on this episode, we're talking about it from the perspective of the bands, and we're doing that by talking with Jed Carlson, the founder of Reverb Nation. Reverb Nation is the platform launched in 2006 for independent bands to share their music and grow their audiences. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. You're listening to the podcast that explores digital entrepreneurship and internet history by talking with history's most successful tech entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial tech entrepreneur myself, and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. When teaching entrepreneurship, I love using the music industry as an example of how an emerging technology can create all sorts of new and valuable entrepreneur opportunities by disrupting the way a well-established industry has always done business. It's the classic tale of disruptive innovation that you've surely heard plenty of entrepreneurs talking about, particularly when they proudly proclaim they're disrupting an industry. To be fair, for the most part, it's rarely what's actually happening, but it's definitely what happened in the music industry. And our guest on this episode, Jed Carlson, was one of the disruptors doing it. I'm excited to share his story, but first, I'm excited to tell you about this podcast's sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They help people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, Shopify accounts, domain portfolios, basically any type of online work from anywhere internet business you can think of. If you've got a profitable internet business and you're thinking about what it might take to sell it, make sure to reach out to the team at Latona's. Their brokers have decades of experience selling internet businesses and they can help you get yours sold for a great, great, great price. 
Or if you're thinking about buying an internet business, Latonas is going to be able to help you too. You can start by heading on over to their website where you'll find listings for all the businesses Latonas is currently helping to sell. That website is, of course, latonas.com. That's L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. As I already mentioned, Jed Carlson and his company Reverb Nation, well, he, he's a disruptor in the digital music space. Now, you might hear that and think he must be someone who began with a passion for music, but that's actually not the case. And it's a big part of what I love about entrepreneurs. Lots of people think entrepreneurs have to be passionate about the industries in which they're building products, but that's not necessarily true. For example, it's hard to imagine people running companies that sell porta potties are particularly passionate about portable toilets. Instead, great entrepreneurs tend to be passionate about being entrepreneurs and providing genuine value to people, which is exactly how I'd describe Jed Carlson's relationship with entrepreneurship. I think to me, it it means, you know, looking at things that need to be born into the world. Like what, what is the world missing or what problems are we having trouble solving and, and how can they be solved? And I think for, for me, the word entrepreneur typically means that you're starting at zero um, in some way, shape or form. It, you know, there's a difference between, uh, you know, folks who are really great at growing existing businesses and, and folks who are great at bringing something to life that wasn't there before. And 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 that's, I think, my passion. Out of curiosity, where did that passion for entrepreneurship come from? Was it de novo or was there someone in your life, uh, maybe a parent or close family member, who was entrepreneurial and demonstrated in some ways the potential of entrepreneurship? Uh, my father um, was an entrepreneur. Uh, he grew up on a farm which is actually quite an entrepreneurial endeavor in, in itself, and then uh, built a very, very uh, successful business in his own right, uh, grew it to be quite large, ended up selling it. But I, I got to watch him firsthand and, and, and learn from the stories and the experiences that he was having and was uh, so willing to share with me. So yeah, it was a huge influence and it, it gave me the confidence that as scary as it is to try to do something de novo, as you call it, that it can be done if one has enough willpower um, and perseverance and, and, and sheer willpower to bring something into the world. It can be done. I give him the credit for that. And was Reverb Nation your first entrepreneurial endeavor or were you building tech companies before that? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 from a technology startup standpoint, it was for sure. Before that, I had done a, a non-technology. Uh, I wouldn't call it a startup. It was more of a turnaround in the, the printing and packaging. We actually... My first company, we printed and made the boxes that software was sold in off the shelf, which I, I know to a lot of your listeners, they're not even going to believe that that's true and that actually happened. But yes, software used to be sold on CD-ROMs and floppy disks on a shelf at the Best Buy or wherever you would go for that. Um, so we made a lot of the packaging for that. Then I got out of that business um, and, and Reverb Nation was my first true software, like you know, internet technology software company. Then take us through that, if you would. Uh, for starters, can you maybe help explain what Reverb Nation is in your own words for our listeners who more than likely aren't members of independent bands? Yeah, absolutely. Reverb Nation uh, is a platform where independent bands and musicians can um, collaborate, market, communicate, 
um, distribute their music, et cetera. So people in the music industry think of it as sort of a super tool uh, for bands that um, sort of helps them do everything around the music business, except make the music. And it was a very successful business. Over 5 million bands worldwide uh, ended up using the platform. And like I said, uh, they could do everything from find their next drummer to promote their music video or book a gig in a, you know, a foreign country. Um, so it was really, really useful tool for, for bands who didn't have, you know, the money or the wherewithal to have a full-time manager or to sign to a record label. How did you discover the problem in the band market? Are you a musician? Did you have some sort of particular passion for the industry? Yeah. So I'm not a musician. Uh, I mean, not really. I'm a, I'm a hack, but the original business plan was really centered around this idea that there were monopoly forces going on in the music industry, specifically with the record labels, and and that there was a lot of great music and a lot of really qualified musicians that weren't able to really have the tools to break through. And so the original business plan was actually concocted uh, between myself and, and three other classmates uh, during business school. And um, after that, they, they all wanted nothing to do with it. They all went into consulting and, and banking and such. And I took the idea and shopped it around and found a, a, another entrepreneur in the area uh, to co-found the business. And, and when we did that, the idea, after looking at sort of the realities of where the market was at in the music industry, the idea morphed from sort of what it originally was on paper, you know, by MBA students to something much more practical, which was a set of tools and services that would be very, very useful to the independent musician and the bands. Um, and we started building that beginning with a fan relationship management module um, that, that allowed bands to communicate freely and openly with their fan bases and grow them successfully and start tapping into the burgeoning sort of world of social media that was popping up at the time. Notice how Jed is talking about the market conditions rather than some cool idea he had for a product. This, for me, is a signal we're talking to a great entrepreneur. Great entrepreneurs aren't focused on what they're building. They're focused on who they're building for. Understanding the who, in other words, understanding the market, is a much bigger driver of entrepreneurial success than knowing what product you're going to build. That was the case for Jed. When he launched Reverb Nation, Jed understood that market conditions in the music industry were ripe for disruption. Yeah, it, we launched in 2006. And, you know, so I would say that the music industry was in the throes of reacting to Napster um, and this notion that music could essentially be pirated. It was being unbundled. So it was sort of the the beginning of the end for the concept of an album. You know, through that process, it became very, very obvious and 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 it was easy to do the math that you know, most albums out there had 15 songs on them and one or two of them were actually the, the sales drivers and the rest didn't, didn't really matter. So once they were unbundled, you know, it, it was a question of, could they be sold individually? And for a while there, before the streaming services came on with their subscription models, you, you, people may remember music was sold a la carte. It was 99 cents a download. And that spelled absolute doom for the music industry because again, they used to get $15 for a plastic silver disc that, that had 13 songs that nobody cared about on it. Now it was being unbundled and now you wanted to pay 99 cents times two 
for the two songs you actually wanted. And, and so the revenue model was being totally destroyed. Uh, and the, and the major record labels were reeling and trying to figure out what, you know, what does digital mean and the sky is falling and all that stuff. Meanwhile, the opportunity for independent musicians to use the internet to not necessarily change their financial fortunes per se, but to improve the probability of going from obscurity to notoriety or fame were really, really potent at the time. And I think that's where we tapped in. Inside of all of that market upheaval, what made independent bands seem like an appealing customer? So bands were really, really great at identity. They all had their domain names. They had great band names. They had good looks. They all had a great band photo. They all had their one or two singles that were pretty decent, but they didn't really know how to tap into what the internet could provide um, in terms of distribution, fan relationship management, et cetera. So that's the market that we entered into was um, major record labels are reeling. The business model is being totally blown to bits. Nobody really knows if these subscription models. So, you know, a, a very, very nascent time. A Apple Music didn't exist. I think Spotify had just started and was under fire, an attack from the music industry. Didn't know if it was friend or foe, uh, how to react to it, et cetera. Should they build it? Should they buy it? Should they sue everybody? So, I mean, it was it was absolute chaos. And and we built, you know, Reverb Nation at that time there was this, this opening where um, independent music had a chance to start to level the playing field as the monopolistic power of the record labels began to erode. And that's where we sort of slotted in, if that makes sense. Well, so it, it definitely makes sense that you're looking at this chaotic market and thinking there's opportunity in it. I guess my question is, of all the potential opportunities in the music market that come as a result of the upheaval of the internet, why focus on independent bands? What helped you figure out that was a valuable market within the music industry rather than something else? Because at first, I'd think independent bands is generally a group that largely doesn't have a lot of money. Well, to be honest, when we set out, we didn't know how good a market or bad a market it might be, or even how big a market it is, because the only data points at that point were really MySpace um, as an indicator for how many band profiles there were. And I think I think a lot of people were really surprised actually by how many bands got put on MySpace and, and what the total volume was. I mean, it was in the millions, uh, if not even approaching you know ten million sort of quote unquote band pages. So we we knew that there was a large N. What we didn't know was you know would these bands pay for products and services that could help them in all sorts of different ways. So we actually set out um, to pursue really a freemium model where we would use as a customer acquisition tool, free uh, value added products and services for the bands that made their lives easier and better and gave us the opportunity to have a relationship with them over time, become trusted, and then introduce paid services to them. Okay, so going after a low-dollar customer with a freemium model, that I guess makes sense. So what was the free product you were able to use to lure them in? So the very first thing that, that we did that was really the key to our customer acquisition was, here you've got this exploding internet. Every band has a website at bandname.com. Every band has a MySpace page. Every band, you know, maybe on this site or that site or this blog or that blog or wants to be 
on, you know, the Onion AV Club or whatever the bloggers of the day are that are featuring, you know, Pitchfork, I guess at the, at the time was kind of big. And what nobody really had at their fingertips was uh, an easy to use and easy to distribute, easy to embed music player, MP3 flash music player. So the very first thing we built was this sort of universal music player, simple as upload your MP3, use this code, share it on MySpace, post it to here, embed it here. And we kept track of plays and, you know, we, we tried to get people to subscribe to their fan relationship management system, to their email list through that player. So we use that player as the front door for the, the, this was the band's entry on-ramp to the band, right? For the fan. And so we built that and we gave that away for free. And, and frankly, it didn't cost all that much. You know, Flash was not expensive software. It was kind of complex and, and clunky, but we built it, put it out there and we let the band skin it and embed it everywhere. And lo and behold, we learned something really amazing. We learned that the average person who's in an independent band is actually in like 2.4 bands um, or something. like that. It was some coefficient where like, hey, you're not just the drummer in this project over here. You're also the drummer in this jazz project over there. And you have, you know, multiple interests in music. So people were in all these bands. And so we had this great viral coefficient on that music player. Once one band used it, they told all their other bandmates. And of course, they're all in other bands. And so it became this really, really um, hot commodity. And, and the fact that there was no financial barrier to it, it was totally free. It took off. And that was our primary sort of acquisition channel for years. Um, and from there, we added on paid services and, and had a free channel to speak to the bands with. And just how big was that free channel as a growth strategy? The first two years of the company's existence, we didn't even have a paid product. We were just building, uh, you know, adding to the viral coefficient off of that music player product that we put out originally. And so when we put that out, Aaron, it was, I don't know if you remember, there was a commercial on TV about 10 years ago. It was a UPS commercial and it was about an internet startup and everybody gathers around the computer and the computer goes from zero to one customer and they cheer and they're like, Woo! and then it goes from one and it goes, and it's like 10 and they're like, yeah. And then it goes from 10 and it spins it starts spinning out of control and it crosses a thousand. And all of a sudden they're looking at each other going, Oh, shit. like, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with this? That's, that's literally what happened with the music player. We, we started getting, you know, one band a day, 10 bands a day. And within a month, you know, we had a thousand bands a day joining the site for free, no variable cost, right? Just signing up to the point where we were like, okay, we've really got something here. And, and it was at that point that the conversation really shifted to sort of monetization and, and starting to plan for that. And that's the hard part about growing a freemium product, right? You've got to be able to turn all that growth into revenue or it'll put you out of business. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, my co-founder and I would probably agree on this, that I think we waited at, at Reverb Nation a little bit too long to monetize. At the time, you know, flashback to that period of time, the world was sort of drunk on this grow your user base, like without any business model behind it, right? Just kind of grow it. It was Facebook was coming online and MySpace had been on there. Like there was this obsession, uh, investor obsession with monthly active users, right? Can you get that to 50 million, 20? Like what's the, how big a number can you go? And I think, and, and it was actually our investors that kind of straightened us out on this eventually, but 
I think we waited a little bit long to test the hypothesis of whether or not we could generate revenue from all of these users. And, and it created you know, a little bit of tension in the company, a little tension in business, tension between us and the investors for a period of time. And, and the reality was that at least I'll speak for myself, not necessarily my, my co-founders, but uh, I had definitely drunk the Kool-Aid uh, and was very high on user acquisition and thought, the answer isn't let's start it, you know, making money. It was how can we get from a million bands to five million bands as quickly as possible? Sort of revenue model be damned. The pendulum can always swing too far either direction. And I think we got out of balance. So once you did start monetizing on the user base, how did you do it? And I guess more importantly, how did you ultimately do it so successfully? Yeah, I, so that's a really great question. And and we made a lot of mistakes along the way and broke a lot of things and tried a lot of stuff. And And really what it came down to was really understanding, we were trying to put together a super tool, really like a one-stop place where the band could form themselves create their online identity, host their content, distribute their content, collect royalties, manage their fan relationships, and even market test their songs with fans and find other bandmates when somebody quits. So all of that kind of in one thing. And, and we needed to figure out, you know, when we would introduce a feature or a service, you know, is it free? Is it paid? How much do you charge? Just sort of the classic like marketing things of price placement, like how do we do it? And and oftentimes, Aaron, it was guided more by what was going on in the marketplace. You know, before there was you know free Gmail, people paid for email services at times. Like so, and if you wanted to you know distribute on mass, like Gmail you know caps you at two hundred and fifty emails a day. So so email became something that people it was a paid service. The market decided that for small businesses, whether you're a band or a real estate agent or a plumber, like send bulk email was going to cost money. So we built an, you know, we built our email system and we charged for it at a certain point. We, we layered in an advertising product, which became the biggest product in the company kind of overnight, which was sort of this idea of, Hey, you've got all this content and it's really great stuff, but how are you getting new fans? Right? So that you're, you have to remember this, the value of the nth fan for a band is totally dependent on how many they already have. If you're a new band and you have zero fans, getting one fan is worth a lot of money to you. Uh, if you already have a million fans, getting the next fan is worth almost nothing to you. So where we were playing is at the bottom of that market, right? We were playing uh, where bands are, are wanting to go from sort of nothing to sort of even local notoriety, right? So so we, we introduced an advertising platform that was really smart really simple, hyper simple, we called it, something that bands could do with just a couple of clicks and the swipe of a credit card. And now they had a way to do promotion to people that weren't already in their network. They, they could plant new nodes of fan bases right around the country in this internet world where it wasn't just about a concentric circle around your hometown anymore. It was a it was concentric circles around the type of music you were creating and that niche fan base that you had. Out of curiosity, are there any bands today I would have heard of that kind of got their start on Reverb Nation? There are, like the Avit Brothers, and like there's there are some. You know, Imagine Dragons was on the site very early. 
Oh, that's that's kind of cool. Though I, I guess in general, it kind of also speaks to the broader point of a resource like Reverb Nation, which is that you know traditionally music was a very monopolistic industry with a set of kingmakers and core group of ultra popular artists. Strikes me that something like Reverb Nation is less about creating more quote unquote kings and more about catering to lots of different musical tastes. That was a huge piece of it, right? Was the monopoly was really great at shutting out bands that, the, you know, unless the bands would agree to their deals, right? Even if you were a fantastic band, there wasn't a ton of competition. There are five major record labels. Now I think there are four, but so, yeah, I mean, they controlled, they were the the kingmakers and they controlled the world. And, and I think the internet and the streaming services uh, in conjunction and sites like Reverb Nation kind of blew that open and gave bands a chance to, uh, to grow organically and on their own. To the point where hopefully, and it was, you know, part of our mission, the hope was that these independent bands could be in a greater control of their own destiny, right? If they were really great, they didn't have to take the first deal that came along. Um, there were tools they could tour on their own. They could make money until they saw something they liked. They could, they could shop deals. They could do whatever. So really the internet streaming services and companies like Reverb Nation, I think, did succeed in leveling the playing field for independent bands to some degree. And how big does Reverb Nation ultimately get while you were helping run it? When we're talking about being a place for independent bands, what size of a market is that? I think we peaked out at around three to five million bands, probably closer to five million. And, and we actually sold the company a couple of years ago. And, you know, I would say that there was a limit to addressable market to the TAM when you're dealing with, you know, independent bands. There were only so many of them in, in, in the world. And, and I would say Reverb Nation had the pleasure of hosting most of them at one point or another in their, in their careers. So we ended up uh, selling that business uh, in, I believe, 2021, I want to say, um, to a company called BandLab out of Singapore. And Reverb Nation uh, still exists to this day. And, and BandLab is, is building more features on it as we speak. And I'm sure reaching uh, more and more bands every single day. Wow, five million. That seems like a lot of bands. And I guess the cool thing about the market is that new bands are always launching, which means the market's always, if not growing, at least not staying stagnant. I guess that's really the thing that impresses me about your story. Getting five million bands, I mean, I can't imagine there are tons more bands than that in the world. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, what do you attribute that success to? I think the thing we did extremely well, and there were a lot of things we didn't, but I think I think what was remarkable about what we did at Reverb Nation was the way we built a system of customer acquisition that had virtually no cost to it. And that was out of necessity because the lifetime value of a band was very, very low. Um, you know, there was a, a only a modest probability that they would ever buy one of our premium services. And even those had to be priced at a point that these independent bands could afford. So, so you're dealing with a low lifetime value. As a result, you have to have a very low CAC model. And, and the only way to do that is with a really incredible viral coefficient, something where your marketing is baked into the product itself. And I would say that is where Reverb Nation uh, excelled, is we, we, we managed to build a customer acquisition machine, and we spent so much time on it. 
So if you could give, say, one piece of advice to any entrepreneurs listening about how to build a similarly amazing customer acquisition machine based on what you did with Reverb Nation, what would it be? What would you tell those entrepreneurs? You know, a a lot of entrepreneurs that I run into, they have this, if you build the product, they will come mentality. And what I always encourage my team was, don't think about customer acquisition after you've built the product. Think about customer acquisition before, during, and after you've built the product, because if if you do it that way, you're going to build it in. And so that's what I think we did extremely well. Don't think about customer acquisition after you've built the product. That's incredible advice from Jed Carlson that every entrepreneur should 100% listen to and follow. And I'm speaking from a position of experience here because, full disclosure, Jed was one of my investors and mentors in a previous startup. And it wasn't until I was following that advice that I started having success building startups. Hopefully, listening to Jed's story and the story of Reverb Nation helps you find startup success, too. If it does, or even if you just enjoyed the episode, please head on over to your podcasting app of choice and leave us a nice review. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Webmasters so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Jed Carlston for taking the time to share his story in the story of Reverb Nation. I also want to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support of the Webmasters Project. Don't forget, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. If you're interested in more stories about some of the internet's most successful entrepreneurs, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about startups and entrepreneurship, which you can find over on my website. It's AaronDinan.com. So check all of those things out and hopefully they'll keep you good and entertained until we release our next episode because, well, this one's over and that means it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Goodbye.